Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am the host of this program, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. Like the rest of you, I'm suffering from a bit of a Barbenheimer hangover, but the world of publishing and entertainment marches on. More content is coming out all the time. We're going to talk to contributor Rachel Llewellyn about the welcome reboot of the animated sitcom Futurama, which is now airing on Hulu, at least in the United States. And we're also going to talk to Paula Schaefer about season two of Good Omens, based on the novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, although the second season goes past the time of the novel, but it's still the same product. Uh, starring Michael Sheen and David Tennant. And first, we're going to talk to Rebecca Curson, one of our contributors who wrote a lovely elegy for the publishing industry this week. The publishing industry has not died, but there were a lot of layoffs, uh, sort of at high levels at major publishing houses. A lot of older editors have been let go, which has us thinking about changes in publishing and in the industry. And Rebecca will be right back here to talk to me about that after this musical interlude. There was a round of layoffs in the publishing industry in the last couple of weeks. A bunch of senior editors at Penguin Random House were let go. Most of the editors were 60 years old or older. Uh, they took the buyout, and uh, they are they are no more. The editors who had edited uh, some of your favorite writers, some very esteemed literary authors, people who have been sort of uh, bulwarks of the publishing community for a long time, and it's led people to call this bloodletting or um, worse than that. And, uh, you know, it, it's definitely led to some think pieces about what this means for the publishing industry and for literature in general. And Rebecca Curson wrote one of those for us, and she's here with me today to talk about it. Hello. Hi. So little known fact to almost everybody, including listeners of this podcast, you've had many professions over the years, but... <laughs> Among the professions you've had, you were my first literary agent. I was. A long time, almost a quarter of a century ago, you sold the paperback rights to my first book, the Neil Pollock Anthology of American Literature, to HarperCollins for, I believe it was $22,000, something along those lines. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty good. I mean, these days, that would be considered a monster deal. <laughs> <laughs> $22,000 in the year uh, 2000, of course, could, could buy you a row house in some parts of the United States. Uh, and it certainly could buy you, it certainly could buy you a very nice car. And now it's maybe not, not worth quite, quite as much. Yeah. But regardless, you know, the fact that that book in particular got any kind of big publishing deal at all was a sign that we were in a different era of publishing than we are now. Yeah. They, I think, I think at HarperCollins, they were, they wanted to, to have a career with you. And that was just the, like the sort of the beginning of where they saw you going as a talent they wanted to develop over time. Yeah. And they, de they developed and then undeveloped me and then they tried to develop me again. And then it all just kind of went, went to shit. But, <laughs> but that's uh, the nature of uh, publishing and of literary careers in general. But the fact that like there was a publisher who was willing to take a shot at, is sort of an indie satirical writer without uh, with any sales track record of any sort 
uh, in any genre uh, was, was uh, just meant that we were at a different time. There was more money in publishing. It was there was a lot more speculative stuff, and they were looking to develop writers. They weren't necessarily just looking to find you know someone with a YA concept that they could mass market, which is what I feel like a lot of publishing is is now. The the problem is I can't just say oh everything's terrible now. The the fact is that what I what I was writing about is in my days in publishing the paychecks for editors or agents like me were were dreadful. And in some ways you can see why a place like Knopf, this beautiful uh, you know uh, literary institution, wanted to have a, a, a someone with deep pockets so they could pay their staff better. Unfortunately, of course, the downside of that is you, know, you attract more editors, you can pay them better at the same time, then you expect them to make money for you in a way that those expectations weren't as sort of held by your owner. Um, by Sometimes it's a foreign publisher, sometimes it's something, uh, just a, a larger owner here in America, but they didn't have those expectations before that. Although uh, what that meant was everyone was either broke or that they were wealthy otherwise they were already rich when they went into publishing right well very few people get rich in publishing uh public no. it, it is not known as uh, you know it's, it's, this is not the plastics industry it is not the semiconductor industry this is not an industry uh known for its massive profit margins you know publishing is carried along by a few big name writers a few big name series celebrity memoirs politicians books 8,000 page histories of Napoleon, you know, that that's what, you know, books about submarines, that's what sells, not literary fiction, so to speak. And a lot of these people who were laid off in the last couple of weeks, these were like literary fiction people. These weren't James Patterson's editors or, or Stephen King's editors or, you know, or Colleen Hoover's editors. Probably not because they're, they're, and they're potentially just younger too, but for me, the saddest part was when I was researching some of this, and I saw a, a little note about Kathy Horrigan, who had been at Knopf since, since 1963. I clicked on her hyperlink, and it was a love letter that had been written about her just a few years ago, that she was the treasure of Knopf and that she was like the jewel in their crown. And that was just a couple years ago, and now she's absolutely, they, they couldn't get her out of there fast enough, despite her institutional knowledge and her, you know, incredible depth of experience. She's, they have nothing for her now, because that's not what Knopf or anything else can really afford to do anymore. They can't afford to pay 80-year-old literary editors uh, yeah. what is amounts to an honorarium, um, you know, really for for the bottom line of the company that owns Knopf, right? Because, you know, she wasn't bringing in, she wasn't bringing in profits for them. Not not in the way that she, she, she was like the, a managing editor, so she was sort of running things. Um, and to, to me, that's sort of, that's very troubling. I, I know, I realized that she was older, but you wonder... Then who is running things? If they got rid of everybody who's over 60, then who knows how stuff gets done? It's not as easy as you think in editing. Um, there's a ton that happens, and you really depend on someone who's older and has tremendous experience to help guide books that may be difficult, may be troublesome. All that, all that knowledge is gone now. I don't know who they've, who's replaced these people. I'm guessing they're very young. Um, hungry and basically inexperienced. I mean, look, 
I, I agree that it, it is, uh, you know, troubling to get rid of everyone all at once. Yeah. But at the same time, you you and I sort of enjoyed the last, uh, sort of the last corona of the golden years of a certain kind of publishing industry, right? The oh, yeah. the the the, lo- the long lunches, the yeah. the stacks of yellowed paper on desks, you know, the the sort of the the copy machine that never worked, you know, the 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 broken pencils, you know, the 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 sort of the stereotypical thing you, things you think about. When you think about the the publishing industry, mm-hmm. right, and um, yeah. you know, it's sort of, it wasn't pre-internet when we when we were in it. I mean, you were in it as an editor and an agent, and I was a writer. But it was sort of pre-social media hype, pre-blogging in in, in some ways. You know, there, it was it, it was before the modern world of publishing in which we exist now. So when you're writing an elegy, and I'm feeling kind of wistful about the the golden. Uh, age, the golden days. I mean, first of all, we were there at the end. And uh, second of all, I mean, it has been replaced by something else, as someone pointed out in a comment on your on your excellent article. You know, there are millions of books published every year. Yes. Yes, but. But, yeah, exactly. I think what's happening, yes, there's still a lot of books published, but I would I would venture to say without knowing off the top of my head the numbers, it's probably by fewer authors, um, and it tends to be concentrated. You mentioned Colleen Hoover. I certainly don't want to pick on her. I'm thrilled anyone's reading anything. But I think that you you tend to have a couple monoliths in publishing and that there's just not a lot of space for other people. And there there, there used to be. Um, I understand completely. People will, will say, well, publishing used to be monolithic in terms of it only looking like uh, you know, mostly men, mostly white, that kind of thing. But at the same time, you, you did have a broader breadth, I would argue, of, of authors who were represented. You had a, a tremendous number of mid-list or very small writers that people took a chance on. And I, I don't know. People mentioned Cormac McCarthy several times in, in the recent weeks since his death. It's true. I don't know that somebody would take a chance on an unagented um, mess of a weird experimental novel that that just would not really happen now. Yeah, I mean, it's true that like even when you and I were in publishing or before, you know, the everything was sort of kept afloat by Tom Clancy and Danielle Steele and Jackie Collins and you know James Michener and like a, some other like people who just sold millions upon millions of books and would just churn them out. And there was, of course, plenty of uh, literature for young readers, uh, just like there is today. In fact, there's even more of it today, I would say, and, and it's actually better overall. But there is this mid-list of like literary writers, of short story writers, mm-hmm. of of people who were putting out books that would sell 30,000 copies to a dedicated cadre of readers. And they're the kinds of books you would see when you like took a vacation house and they were on the shelves and they weren't necessarily bestsellers, but they were what the literary people were reading. And I don't feel like that layer really that really exists anymore. It's not really served anymore. I would agree with that. Um, it, it makes me very sad. I, I looking back over the last week since I wrote this, I, looking at the shelves, I saved many of the books that I worked on, and many of the ones that I just treasure. And tons of them are by authors you'll never hear of or know of, but they they changed my life. They were incredibly meaningful to me, and I. I, again, I look at them and I think, I don't know that this person would be published today. It probably wouldn't happen, or they'd they'd find a way to, to perhaps self-publish and, and kind of hope for the best and hope somebody would, would see them. That, I mean, that happened to, I think, Colleen Hoover started that way, and certainly um, 
Andy Weir of The Martian, who I, I love his work, he also started out as self-published. So there's a non-traditional way, but that's, I can only think of two examples off the top of my head where that's worked. And there are plenty of others, and they're mostly in, they're mostly in genre fiction, right? Colleen Hoover writes, for lack of a better term, romance novels. Andy Weir is a sci-fi writer. Yeah. You know, people who are writing in fantasy and in, and in uh, crime and in sci-fi and, uh, you know, YA, there's room for self-publishing there. Again, what is sort of missing uh, from the equation, and this is a lot of what uh, we're, we're lamenting, is that that layer of, like, you know, literary novels, of the, the you know, the observed minutia of life, things that don't necessarily fit a genre or don't have best-selling potential. And I, and I think when we're writing an elegy for the publishing industry, it's that elegy for, you know, what I would call like undergraduate lit or lit for like, you know, sensitive young literary people living in New York or whatever, you know, that's, that's not really around anymore. And that I think is what has been, um, what is being sort of wiped clean by, by this, uh, this round of layoffs and publishing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid you're right. You know, in the nursing home, we'll be like, I remember when <laughs> Gordon Lish yeah. Gordon Lish used to, to publish short stories yeah. by Amy Hempel or whatever, you know, but that, that is true. Like that is what happened. You know, there was, there is a, a, a literary class in a way that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. And that's what I think that's probably what attracted me and so many others to, to, to the idea of being an, an editor. It certainly wasn't the, the riches. It was more that you'd be, valued for the, the the gems that you'd find and that you would work with a writer and have other people experience the joy that you had when reading this person and bringing them something absolutely marvelous and beautiful and personal. And I, I there's probably still literary fiction published today, I'm sure of it, but it, it, you're right, it just doesn't feel the same and it never will again. Well, I got into publishing for the riches. What a fool I was. <laughs> I got close. I got sort of close a couple of times, uh, but uh, regardless, um, there, there, there is, there's not going to be any bloodletting at Book and Film Globe anytime soon. We run a lean, mean operation, and uh, there'll always be a place for you to write reviews of books that you find meaningful. So, so at least there's that. Thank you, <laughs> Rebecca Carson. Um, yeah, let's. Uh, I, I need that some of the paperwork for the residuals for the anthology. I, I, I we have to, we have to work that out. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I have like countless countless pennies uh, waiting me somewhere. Uh, but uh, beyond that, you know, we'll continue to uh, keep an eye on trends in publishing. You know, who knows? Maybe this will lead to something better. I, I don't know. The music industry seems to have found a way for people to do Bandcamp or other things where they release music directly. So far, publishing hasn't found that that way. My ship's coming in soon, Becky. I can feel it. Okay. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Oh, we're back, baby! In two seconds, you will collide with your destination. Good news, everyone! We seem to have survived a massive disruption in the flow of time. Wait, what exactly happened? Here, look at this. Stop fighting! Okay, I'm done. To the ship! A new virus has broken out. I've developed a test to see who's infected. Ah, you jam this Q-tip up your nose. 
That looks kind of fun. I can't wait to do it hundreds of times. Pretty lawless out here in crypto country. Say, you interested in a job? Sorry, guys. I'm a flatty. I'm just glad you're back. Would you like to order erotic scented massage oil or fuzzy handcuffs? Yes, God, please. that's creepy. I mean, yeah, so creepy. There are TV reboots, and then there are reboots of reboots, and then there are shows that have rebooted themselves multiple times. The show that has rebooted itself most often is Futurama, which is now uh, airing new episodes on Hulu, the the Matt Groening sitcom, uh, which seemed to debut a thousand years ago, but I think it was only 1999. Now it's back um, with new episodes, same voice cast, same characters, same animation style, same writing staff, and Rachel Llewellyn is here to talk to me about the new Futurama. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. It's good to be here. Yes, uh, I, I figured you were a good person to talk about Futurama with, as you, you know, you've. This is a show you have been watching in its many incarnations. I think it aired on Fox for a while, and then it then they do original um, Comedy Central episodes, and then was it back on Fox? I don't know. I don't know exactly what the journey has been, but now it is on Hulu, and I didn't get a press preview of the first five episodes like a lot of people did, but I did watch the pilot of the reboot and i loved it yeah okay well wow is it funny all right well talk about talk about your uh high points what would you like about it well i mean i you know what futurama does so well is it it satirizes the present right and so the opening episode was a parody of streaming services and of streaming tv and uh, down to the point where like the actual the streaming service is named fulu i mean it's a little on the nose you know, and it's run by these these extremely stupid uh, cost-cutting robots. Um, and the, the whole thing is essentially run by robots. It's acted by robots. It's written by robots. Uh, ro- robots are, are are pretty much everything in the future. So it was a, I thought it was a funny satire of streaming TV and of artificial intelligence. And, you know, the show, like, it just had kind of a light touch uh, with itself. I mean, it didn't – Futurama's never been one to take itself too seriously. And there were a number of excellent winks about how it's rebooted itself many times. And I don't know. I th- it didn't really try too hard to do anything new. Right. Like it was the same characters doing the same shtick. Right. And I, yeah, I agree. As it ended on season 10, they really made an elegant sort of loophole for to pick up, you know, bringing everyone back to the present in season 11. Um, So I feel like there was a pretty seamless crossover in that regard. Thanks to the writing in season 10. I mean, that was, that was probably one of my top 10 like animated series finales ever. Um, It was really well-written and, you know, like I said, it, it left that window open to re revive the series, which it kind of has come back like, <laughs> like cicadas, you know, every like, you know, decade or so there's some new iteration, like you mentioned on, on some channel or service, but yeah, they're, they're back. And I have to say as someone who has loved the series and desperately wanted to like the first episode, what I've seen so far, I've been really disappointed. Um, I, I, yeah, there's, there's definitely some highlights. I gotta say there's some, some great, you know, moments, there's great Easter egg, 
obviously pokes fun at Hulu. There's some great high points. You got, you know, Dan Castellaneta's back as robot devil. You know, uh, <laughs> they show Slurms McKenzie, you know, coming back to, to sell, you know, Slurm Zero, but he looks like crap because he's been swilling this, you know, radioactive goop all these years. So it's, it's definitely, you know, self-referential. There's a great scene where Bender is like, channel surfing and all the tv shows names are hilarious you know it's better call cthulhu well they have a they have a um, extended extended parody of black mirror yes exactly which in and of itself poked fun at netflix one of the episodes when you liked with annie murphy it was all you know it was a very meta very oroboric you know writing very self-referential kind of tongue-in-cheek and so i you know i was i was glad to see that played out and i think futurama did it well but i have to say i I really don't like how temporal it's gotten. Like the Simpsons kind of jumped the content shark when they started just becoming, you know, trying to be parallel, you know, and bring up these social issues when really the strength of the original series was the original ideas. And so I felt like it was kind of limited narratively, um, but I'm hoping we'll see more far-flung adventures. I wonder wonder though, Rachel, if that just might not be the pilot reboot, you know, because there's obviously like once it's back, and it's established they can start planet hopping again they can they, they can start parodying a lot of different you know they can just sort of more broad right. comedy um i think that they were just trying to reestablish themselves for the streaming age right um, <laughs> and they did that for sure and also what i like is that it's short right it's just 10 episodes so you're not you're not mm-hmm. dealing with one of these 23 episode network seasons where there's inevitably a third of the episodes are just going to be robot fart jokes <laughs> exactly yeah and you're, you're exactly right about that they are going to be expanding the storyline once it got picked up they're going to be having more far-flung adventures involving more character development but they were just kind of putting their footprint you know in terms of like this is how we kind of relate to you know like you mentioned the streaming age they had a collab with Fortnite where they were you know all these young kids now are buying you know Fortnite skins or you know futurama skins for their Fortnite. So it's a really cool crossover and there's a whole new generation of fans that are sort of getting hooked into this. So I'm hoping that it flies high and far. My son wasn't even born when Futurama debuted and he was all over that reboot. He was that <laughs> Did first he like episode. it? Oh, he loved it. He loved it. I mean, you know, B- Bender is a role model for young men. Right, right. That's true. I, I, one thing I will say about, about the, uh, the, re- the reboot is that there wasn't a lot of, there was some Bender. I mean, there's always some Bender, but there wasn't a ton of, it wasn't a Bender-centric episode, which is kind of surprising, given that he really is the main character. And John DiMaggio, we, you've written about this on the site, you know, there was a big contract dispute over the voice, with the voice actor who plays Bender. Um, he almost didn't, didn't do it, and there was no way you could have a reboot without him. And uh, he now gets first billing. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I did. <laughs> That's funny. I noticed that. And that may have been one of his, you know, uh, acquiescences because as it turns out, he didn't end up getting more money uh, for the role. But um, as he mentioned at, uh, I guess, like a Comic-Con, I believe some kind of event in Phoenix, but he did bring a lot of awareness and attention to the issue of, you know, voice actors not getting the same, you know, pay and perks as, as on-screen actors. And there was like the whole hashtag Bendergate and it really got a lot of the fans on board. So that was, you know, a great way to get publicity towards that cause, which is, you know, obviously ties in with the current writing strikes uh, going on right now. Well, speaking of the writing strike, actually, one thing I noticed is that the guy who wrote this episode, Patrick Verone, the lead writer credit on the episode, was the head of the WGA the last time they stroke 
this they stroke they had a stroke <laughs> they struck um in 2007 and i remember that because i actually had to go on strike that time and he was he was presided over all the all the uh, negotiations and all the um speeches and so uh and there he is writing still writing futurama yeah hmm. i wonder how his residual uh, <laughs> yeah so it's like thanks a lot man how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. A little cognitive dissonance for me there. But um, I, I guess apparently DiMaggio was saying that Disney had a backup plan to replace him with like a different celebrity guest star voice mm. every episode. No. I don't even know how that would have worked. Yeah. I'm, no. I'm glad that didn't work out. But yeah. yeah that's who, uh, who, who would have done that? Who would have been willing to step into those shoes? I mean, Bender is one of, you know, he's like, he's the Homer Simpson of the show. You can't, you can't replace Bender. Yeah, talk about scab. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm I'm hoping the show is self aware enough that they're going to make fun of that in future episodes. I'm I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. There were some great lines. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. Being self referential, there's nothing wrong with being self referential. There were some really funny sort of you know poking fun at just the show and Hulu and uh, all of that stuff. So I I enjoyed it. There were definitely some Easter eggs and some good laughs for some longtime fans. And hopefully, you know, like you said, this will start hooking the new fans with basic kind of storylines, getting to know, you know, the Planet Express crew and then building on the story from there. So I'm excited to see them pick up a whole new audience. Yeah, and they have all the back episodes on Hulu as well. So there's lots of of opportunities for binging. Uh, You probably, again, the animation style has not become more sophisticated over the years. So uh, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference unless you were a super nerd like us. So uh, I don't know. You know, and one thing that Hulu is doing, which is interesting, is they're introducing, they're not, you can't binge them all. You get one a week. Yeah, they're they're definitely, uh, you know, making us wait. So every Monday, new episode of Futurama, catch them all. Catch up, kids, in the meantime. I'll be there Sunday night at midnight. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to write about it. So I want to be able to have a little bit more uh, reference point than just one episode. I'm a, I'm a professional that way. Uh, and they'll, they'll never replace me with artificial intelligence, Rachel. <laughs> you have to have some intelligence to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rachel, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> I'm back. I can see that. Hell just got a rumor. Something's up. Upworm. Up. Up. The Archangel Gabriel has disappeared. I think he's gone to Earth. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, officer. Exactly. I'm a human police officer. You spotted Gabriel? He's definitely not in the shop. It's just a zero fail. The traitor. <sighs> and his grumpy friend, Mr. Crowley. <laughs> The demon. Oh, I suppose that explains the grumpiness. Really, there's something urgent that I need to talk to you about. Oh, and of course, his assistant. Hi there. Ah, Gabriel! What's he doing here? I don't know. What's happened to him? I don't know. Why did you come to my shop? You know what it's like when you don't know anything at all, and yet you're totally certain that everything would be better if you were just near one particular person? No. Well, certainly not. He's in trouble. We need to hide him from everybody. Heaven, hell, we do it together. Together. While we figure out what's actually going on. I think I may have just started a war. Oh, hell won't like that. You're a demon. I'm going to get into so much trouble. Well, then. 
Let's make it worthwhile. There's a new season of Good Omens out on Amazon Prime. Good Omens uh, season one was based on the popular sci-fi fantasy novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Uh, Terry Pratchett is no longer with us, uh, but Neil Gaiman is still with us. And so Good Omens 2 uh, takes the spirit of Good Omens season one and channels it into some new adventures. Uh, Paula Schaefer is here to talk with me about the Good Omens franchise. Hello, Paula. Hey there. Yes. Always glad to talk about David Tennant, especially. Well, there's the thing, right? Like, to me, the main appeal of Good Omens is David Tennant. David Tennant was the, you know, the greatest Doctor Who of all time, even better than Tom Baker, which is hard for me to admit. And he co-stars in Good Omens with Michael Sheen. Uh, David Tennant plays a fallen angel or a a demon named Crowley, uh, and Michael Sheen plays an angel named, is it Azrael? Azrael? Aziraphale, something like that. It's something that sounds like a like acne medicine. And, you know, Good Omen season one is just a, pretty much a direct adaptation of the book. So it's talking, this devil and this angel are having these adventures involving witches. And I don't know. It was pretty stupid, but it was a direct adaptation of the book. So because of that, it, it you know, it, it was fun. You know, season two is, is a sort of an original production based on the characters created by. And so because of that, I feel like it, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a shadow of its former self. Maybe you disagree. No, I agree. I feel like Game of Thrones shows us what happens when you run out of the original source material and start pulling from ideas of what could happen. And there's not a lot of substance there. Yeah. And so you're basically carried along by the charm, which is quite substantial of David Tennant and Michael Sheen. And also to some extent of John Hamm, who plays the angel Gabriel uh, in both the original and now. And now in this one, he's sort of a fallen angel and he's just kind of go- is goofing off and is, is always fun to watch. But I, I just feel like it, it just feels a little thin to me. Yeah. It's very forgettable. Even just watching it, it was like, wait, what happened? Oh, not much. It's kind of almost a history of the world kind of spoofy thing where they're just popping up throughout history at different moments of stuff that's going on. But it doesn't even have the heft of the history of the world. <laughs> right. Well, of history of the world part two, which, you know, yeah. I, I, I know that um, mileage uh, varies on history of the world part two in terms of enjoyment. I, I happen to love it. But I, you know, I, to me like this, you know, and that's that's a full Mel Brooks project. Um, this Good Omens, especially the second season, all, I felt, feels to me like a sort of um, really watered down Monty Python. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very watery. Like there was ice in the glass and it melted and then they put a little bit of, you know, lemonade powder in it or something. Yeah, like, you know, like like the opening scene has um, Michael Sheen and David Tennant floating around as angels at the beginning of the universe. And I, and I just kept thinking like they did that so much better in during the song in The Meaning of Life. Yes. <laughs> yes, they did. Or, or in an average episode of Doctor Who, for that matter. Yeah. The appeal is just all in the stars. That that's that's why it's worth watching. Just oh, it's nice to look at these people being silly together and enjoying each other for an hour right now. Great. Well, that's the thing, right? Mike, Michael Sheen and David Tennant actually have become best friends because of this program. Yeah, they had that COVID show staged. I watched all of that too <laughs> that they made like from their houses. What were they? What was that about? They, they were like doing plays, or they were like yeah. I, I honestly don't remember very much, but but I did watch it. It was just like 
they were putting on a production or writing a play while they were in lockdown. And it was just like more about like their friendship and just kind of spoofy and goofy and silly. And, you know, their wives would pop in sometimes or whatever. Well, I guess like, I guess what it comes down to, though, is if you want like British buddy humor, you've got the uh, the trip movies with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, which are which are infinitely funnier. And if you want a uh, wacky British um, religion satire, there's infinite uh, hours of Monty Python to watch. And if you want history of the world satire, you've got a lot of Mel Brooks. Yep. So a good omens is like for people who sort sort of like that stuff, but don't care if it's bad. Yeah. If you don't want to do any heavy mental lifting, there it is. I, I, I just felt like I was like in the back room of like one of those um, stores that specializes in board games. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But, you know, and, and John Hamm, I mean, you're, you're undervaluing how John Hamm being just pretty and, and funnier than he should be popping up, you know, that that adds value to some of us. Yeah, um, you know, yeah like- I, do, I, do love, I do love John Hamm. And, you know, while I, you know, I didn't, you know, it's not really for me, but there was a lot of John Hamm's butt there was. in the opening. There was a lot of ham hunch, for sure. Ham hocks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and, and wiggling around and, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, for a certain kind of viewer, that's, that's, that's extremely valuable. Just like it was extremely valuable to me to see Florence Pugh naked in Oppenheimer. Yeah, you needed that to get through. <laughs> well, it was, it was a nice, it, it was, it was a nice palate cleanser in the middle of a movie about nuclear apocalypse. I got to say, and, you know, and John Hamm naked is just an extra little uh, cherry on top of the Sunday. Oh, oh. oh what is this doing here? Hmm, how about that? Now, I, I, will admit, I will admit, Paul, I've only watched the first episode of season two. Does he get naked again? No, no, there's just a little bit of, uh, there's just episode one. And then, but what it does do is it does more fan service, uh, spoiler alert, at the end. Like, there's a big contingency of people who want these angels, the angel demon, to be a love story. And they turn it into that. They they do the so it, like, it kind of like becomes its own slash fiction. Yes, yes, it'd be, they'd go there. It's very much just like, we know why you're watching this. We know what you want. Here you go. Yeah. And that's kind of the biggest bummer about it because it feels like, oh, this really is just being made to be just what people want instead of something that might surprise people or make them, you know, feel or think something different than they expected. It's just going with, oh, we heard you. We see what you want. Here you go. Well, that sounds sounds really horrible. Uh, hopefully, my wife won't make make me watch the rest. <laughs> but it's worth talking about because the show is popular, you know, and you know it, it it is a major franchise. And you know, we ran a piece by William Schwartz talking about uh, this week. We're talking about how you know maybe Neil Gaiman's point of view has kind of run its course. You know, this sort of like you know wink wink about religion, uh, you know, and, and mythology coming back down to earth. You know, I didn't like American Gods the show that aired on stars. I was not a, as huge a fan of the Sandman as I wanted to be. And, you know, and this, this definitely just feels a little, a uh, little used up to me. Yeah. It feels kind of dated somehow. Yeah. It feels very, um, very nineties. Absolutely. All right. Good Omens is, is there for you. If you want to watch angels making out or want to see John Hamm's butt, uh, or if you just like uh, sort of a watered down British, uh, supernatural buddy comedy. Yes. If you're a specific kind of pervert, or feeling mentally lazy and just want to, it's like a warm cup of tea of a show. There you go. 
You probably just described 95% of our audience, Paula. So true, I think, true. I think, and I think probably myself. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the holy trinity. All right, Paula, thanks a lot. Sure thanks. All right, thanks, Paula Schaefer. Season two of Good Omens now airing on Amazon Prime. Season umpteen of Futurama is now airing on Hulu, and Rachel Llewellyn was here to talk to me about that. Thanks to her, and thanks to Rebecca Curson for discussing the somewhat sad changes in the publishing industry, but Time March is on. We will keep reading, at least some of us will, and you will keep listening to this show and reading Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We're covering the worlds of books and film and streaming TV every day, and we're putting on this show every week. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm your host. I'm probably your friend. I thank you for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.